Uh, we've been going through this series. We only have a couple more weeks uh, left in this series. So for those of you, and I've talked to many of you that have really enjoyed this, uh, it's just about wrapping up. We have two weeks after this, then we'll go into Advent and then still praying and deciding through what the new year will hold for us. But we've been looking at the core beliefs of Christianity, what, what the church, what Christians have taught and believed for thousands of years. We've been looking at the core beliefs of Christianity. But Christianity is not only beliefs that sit in our mind. It's not only an experience of God that we have. Wherever you find Christians throughout the world, you will find the church. Whether Christians have been persecuted as in China and it has tried to be wiped out, now the church grows underground. Whether it's in different languages or buildings or homes, where, wherever you will find Christians. And as long as Christians have been around, you will find the church. Why? Sometimes we wonder that. What is the church? Why does it matter? And, and increasingly so, especially in America and in places like Denver and Arvada, increasingly so, many people are unsure. Why do we have the church? What's it for? Do we need the church? Especially in an age when you can find all sorts of sermons online. You can listen to great music, Christian music online. You can find great teachers, people that people, uh, you know, for various topics. If you want Christian marriage advice or Christian parenting advice or Christian dating advice or Christian business advice, whatever. I mean, you can find all sorts of teachers or social media influencers. There's great apps to help you read the Bible, to pray, to, to do all sorts of things. And we can wonder, so why do we need the church? Maybe it was good for people back then, but today we've got friends that you can connect with. You've got teaching. You can have music. What is the church for? Why do we need the church? This is why, again, in America and in places like Denver, that when you drive around, you see many churches closing. I've seen in the time that we've been in Denver, uh, 11 and a half years, I think, something like that, seen dozens and dozens of churches close, become breweries, become condos, become housing developments, become anything that you can imagine. This is why many churches are closing. This is why statistically, and I won't show you all the data on this, but most Christians, most Christians say, I don't need the church for my personal relationship with Jesus. This is why uh, even sometimes people come to church, but it's a casual thing, just like sometimes you might uh, go to a bar to watch your favorite game and gather with people there, and sometimes you go to church, and sometimes you do this. It's a casual thing. Why do we need the church? What's it for? God's plan for your life is not just a personal relationship with him. God's plan for your life is the church. And as long as Christians have existed, as long as Christianity has been throughout the world, throughout time, the church has been an essential part of that. And so it's, we can't really talk about Christian beliefs without talking about what do Christians believe, what does the Bible teach about the church. And I'll just tell you up front. You will, and I know, listen, I just know this. Some of you don't believe me, but it's okay. Well, hopefully the Bible will convince you throughout the end of our time together. But you will never have 
what God intends for your life. You will never have what God intends for your life apart from deep, deep connection to the church. So let's explore this together. What is the church? What is the church? What is the church? What comes to your mind when you think about church? Might be bad things. Might be news headlines and various things that we've seen, scandals and all sorts of bad stuff. Maybe that comes to your mind, especially for those of you maybe that are just checking out church and kind of unsure. Maybe you've been disconnected from the church for a while and are coming back to check things out. Maybe you're new to all this. So maybe what comes to your mind when talking about church is not good stuff. And sadly, there's reason for that. Maybe what comes to mind when you think about church is more just a spiritual experience. Sometimes people will say things like, oh, my church is fill in the blank. My church is the mountains. My church is uh, these people. When I, you know, when I go running with my group, of, ah, that's my church. And it means this spiritual experience where maybe in the most positive sense, you experience something of God's goodness and creation. So sometimes people use it like that, this spiritual, oh man, that, that was church. You know, people will say something like that. Maybe what comes to your mind is a building. Probably not typically a building like this. You don't go to, you know, Europe and see all oh, these great cathedrals and there's a boat in it, right? It doesn't happen there. It's because they sold indulgences, which we will be doing shortly. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, maybe what comes to your mind is just the organization itself or certain activities. Maybe some of you that grew up going to church, what comes to your mind is church activities and things. When we come to the Bible and seek to answer this question, what is the church? The answer that the Bible gives is this. The church is the assembly of God's people. That's why the word, a lot of people don't necessarily use this word as much anymore, but the, a common word used to be, and some people still use it, but is congregation. It is the putting together, the assembly. That's what the word means. Ekklesia means assembly. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is very common, that came around the, about 3rd century BC, very common use in Jesus' day. That's what they would have been familiar with and known. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses that word, ekklesia, which literally means assembly. And in the Old Testament, it'll be translated often as assembly. When you come to the New Testament, they'll translate it as church. Let me just show you a few examples of this. In the Old Testament says, the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, assemble. This is the word, ecclesia, same word that it, we have in the New Testament that's translated as church. It's assembly. That's what the word literally means. Assemble the people before me, and I will let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and may instruct their children. Or when you get to the New Testament, talking about the Old Testament, it says of God, he is the one who was in the assembly. In the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, he received living oracles to give to us. So it uses this word, assembly, which means the congregation. It means the gathering. This is the same word that we use for church. You look at a verse like this, and it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This doesn't mean Christ loved a building. It doesn't mean that Christ loved some spiritual experience, my church. It's talking about Christ loved the people that he assembled together. 
the people that he gathered to himself. Or you will see Jesus say this, and also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Again, not talking about a physical structure, but he's saying I will build my assembly. On this rock I will gather my people together, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll show you this one final verse. It says, Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers or elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So the church, the word literally means assembly. That is what the church is. It is the assembly of God's people. It is the people of God that God is gathering to himself, that he is congregating, assembling, calling to himself. That is what the church is is. Not just a building, not just an organization. It is the people of God that God is gathering, assembling to himself. It's what he's always been doing in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why they can use the same language for the Old Testament and call it the assembly or the church as in the New Testament. God is gathering, assembling people to himself. The church is the assembly. Okay, That's very important to understand. Now, the church, as the assembled people of God, is both visible and invisible. Visible and invisible. Okay? This is what, a, a distinction that theologians will use. I'll show you this from the Westminster Confession of Faith that we've uh, been at different times quoting. It says, what is the visible church? The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. So the visible church is what you can actually see. This is the visible church. Okay? It's the people made up in all the different places that profess true religion. The invisible church is the whole number of the elect, the whole number of God's people that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. Now, just in case you don't, didn't catch kind of the distinction there, the difference between the visible and the invisible is that the visible is what you can see, but invisible means some people are here, but they're not actually a part of God's people. Some people might gather physically, but it doesn't mean that they're actually a part of God's people. So God sees who are his. That's why it's invisible. It doesn't mean, yeah, I'm a part of the invisible church. I never come. I'm just invisible. That's not what it means. The invisible church means God sees who are his. Just walking into a building doesn't mean you are actually a part of God's people. So there is the visible, what we can see, and the invisible, what only God can see. It's always mixed. That's why you have, this is just one Bible verse, but you have passages throughout that say things. This is Paul speaking, saying about these false teachers, their teaching will spread like gangrene, and then he mentions specific people. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth. The Lord knows those who are his. Saying there's these people that are part of the visible church, but invisibly they're not. And God knows who are his. God knows who are his. Just walking into a building doesn't make you a part of God's people. So there is the visible and the invisible church. And then as well, there is what is called the universal and the local church church. So the church is this, God's assembling of his people together. That's visible and invisible. 
but it's also universal and local. Universal meaning all over. Sometimes people talk about this as the capital C church and the lowercase c church, where you'll hear things like this, and the Bible uses both language. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So when it's using church here, it's talking about all, all the people of God. That's how it's using it there. The, all the people of God throughout all of these different regions is growing. It's being encouraged, growing by the Holy Spirit. That's the universal church. If I were to say God's church throughout the world is worshiping him on Easter Sunday, if I were to say something like that, I'm talking about the universal all over God's people. Okay. Also, it will use language of the local church. So you can use the church in both ways. The local church, this verse will help us see, not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. So when it's using it like that, it's talking about specific groups. The churches is not used in the same way to talk about the church throughout, but the churches, specific individual local churches, which is why then in the same way, he says, greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, who's the first convert to Christ from Asia. That's a, big, uh, that's a big deal. His name got in the Bible. You're the first convert in all of Asia. Congratulations. Greet also the church that meets in their home. So there's the universal, where you can just talk about God's people throughout, and then the local, where you talk about churches, specific entities, and a specific church that meets in a home or a specific church that meets in a building. That's how it is used. You've got the universal church, God's people gathered all over, and the local church. And the most common way that the Bible uses the language of church is the local church, the specific churches that are meeting in specific places. So both of these are important when you think about what is the church. The church is God's people assembled together, that he has assembled together, visible and invisible, universal, and the local church. This is the way, the way that God gathers broadly, another way to think about this, the way God gathers broadly is specifically. Just like uh, businesses, and this is an imperfect analogy, but just like businesses will have franchises, right? So there's the entity of, I don't know, uh, pick a business. There's the entity of Dairy Queen, right? There's the entity of Dairy Queen that exists, but you don't just say, oh yeah, I just am a part of Dairy Queen in general. There's specific Dairy Queens that exist with specific leaders of those Dairy Queens. and They might have the same vision overall, the same mission statement overall, the same ingredients overall, but they're in specific places, a part of specific communities with specific leaders doing specific things in that location. It is the universal Dairy Queen and the local Dairy Queen. Okay, For those ice cream fans, now you're like, oh, I finally understand the church. All right, there we go. So the church is God's people that he has assembled together. That's what the church is, the assembly. I want you to think just how different that is from how we normally think of church. The way that we normally think of church is not normally the assembly of God's people, which is why it's very common today to just kind of curate our spiritual experience, to curate the things, I like this teacher for this, I like this thing for this. Sometimes it's even actual local churches. People will say, I like this church for this. I like these. I like the community groups at this church. I like the teaching at this church. I like the music at this. And we just kind of buffet, put together our curated spiritual 
experience instead of the churches, the assembly. It is not just teaching or music or voices that are out there. It is actually the coming together, the assembling of God's people. It's very different from how we often think about the church. It was God's idea to gather people together. It was God's idea to say, you need to be gathered together in a local church, in a local place. That's God's idea, not a man-made idea. So that is what the church is. Also, you can understand what the church is if you look at the images and the metaphors of the church. Sometimes that's how people will do it. If you think about the church, there's probably different metaphors from the Bible that come to your mind that the Bible will use. And you might say, oh, the church is this. The church is, oh, we'll look at them in a second. That might be what comes to your mind when you think about the church. So it's helpful to look at the technical definition, assembly, and how the Bible fleshes that out. It's also helpful to go, how do we understand this? And look at the metaphors the Bible uses. Because that helps us understand various aspects of what it means to be the church. And if you only focus in on one of those, by the way, then it'll be lopsided definition. That's why all these metaphors are actually very helpful. Let's look at some of the metaphors the Bible uses. And it doesn't always have to say church in order for us to understand this is a metaphor because what the church is is God's people assembled together. So what does the Bible say when it talks about the church or God's people assembled together? We are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. So one of the metaphors that the Bible will use for the church is God's field or God's building. That's really helpful because that helps us know, oh, the church is a place that we're supposed to grow. The church is a place where there's supposed to be fruitfulness. The church is a place where it's not supposed to be stagnant, but God is seeking to grow something and build something to say, you, God's people, you are God's building. We might not often think about that, but God is building something. Or, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. This has fruitfulness, obviously, as a part of it. It also has this deep connection with Jesus. Say, you are the branches. You're the branches. You're deeply connected to me. You can rest in me. You can experience nutrients and power that come from me as you're connected to me. The church is the branches that are connected to Jesus, the vine. Or, we already looked at this one, but the church is the bride of Christ. That's another great image. Say, the church is the bride of Christ. That that helps us to understand we're supposed to be pure and holy. We're not supposed to be a, a dirty bride that has cheated on her husband. We're supposed to be pure and holy. Now, you are the body of Christ. That's kind of a very common one that maybe you think of. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. That gives this image of we are interdependent upon one another, that all of us are different members, and yet Jesus is the head. We're all connected to him, and together we're able to manifest something of what Jesus is like, even here on earth as we work together and we're connected. It says we need one another. It says we all contribute something different. It all says we each have our role to play, but it also says Jesus is our leader as it talks about him being the head. Well, that's a great image to talk about the body of Christ. It talks about that we are the family. Whoever does the, just as Jesus speaking, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sisters and mother. So to say the church is the family of God. It will have language like this too, where it says that we are God's household. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens within with the saints and members of God's household. So you are part of God's family. When the church comes together, you are God's family. Now that, that's a powerful image also. 
especially for many of you like myself that are not from Denver and you've come from different places in the country or world, you've come from different places and your physical, biological family's not here, but the church is your family. Say, man, I, I can be a part of God's household here. I can have brothers and sisters and people to laugh with and care for me and serve me and that I can serve and that I can enjoy life with a family. You have this, it says that, Paul says, I've written so you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. There's a household language again, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's another image. Say the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. We think about, especially in the ancient world, that pillars hold up this structure. Say the church's job is actually to hold up, to show the truth. It is the pill- it's the foundation of truth. It's the pillar of truth. It's, it's part of the job of the church to show God's truth to the world. See, see, you can see how all of these get at something different. God's people assemble together, and yet all of these metaphors show us a different angle that if you only latch onto one and say, well, the church is just a family. Who cares about kind of showing the truth of God? And that's not, we're just supposed to be a family. Well, no, that's a part of it. Or if you say, well, the church is just, we are here for the truth. We don't care about relationships. We don't get, no, you're missing the family. You're missing that we're God's household. You're missing, we're supposed to be rested and connected to him as a vine. You're you're missing different aspects. That's why all these metaphors are really helpful. Here's another one. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This helps us see that we are a place when we're together that is a temple. We are being built into a temple, a spiritual house, where God's presence is known, experienced, enjoyed, and as priests, this is what uh, the Protestant Reformation talked about, the priesthood of all believers, that we are all priests, intending to serve God, represent God, show what God is like. And then this final one says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It kind of stacks several of them. You're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But all of those get at this corporate reality, not just individual reality, this corporate reality that part of, like the definitions from the Westminster Confession of Faith, that we are a, I like the language, the, the word that they use, the society. We are a society. We are a kingdom. We're a, we are a nation. We are, listen, the church is not just supposed to be a place that you attend on a Sunday or even just people that you have good relationships with. It is supposed to be a kingdom, a society, a nation. It's supposed to be a place where it looks like if Jesus showed up, you know, we all have different political leaders that we like and usually don't like, and like, ah, uh, like when they rule, when they're in charge, this doesn't work well, and this doesn't work well, and we would hope if the right leader got in place, okay, finally, society is functioning how it's supposed to be. Not going to happen, right? Yeah, okay, but that's what our idealistic hope is, right? But what if Jesus shows up and is king over a group of people? What does that country look like? What does that nation look like? What does that society look like? That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a society that shows, it's a whole culture that shows this is what relationships look like. This is what marriage looks like. This is what family looks like. This is what work looks like. This is what worship looks like. This is what fun looks like. This is what, this is what it looks like with Jesus as king in this society. That's what the church is. So you look at all these different images, and they help fill out what 
is the church, the assembly of God's people. And yet all these different images help us understand what that means. Think about how all those different images also show God's heart and what he wants for you. He wants you to experience rest. He wants you to experience family. He wants you to experience a purpose and a mission to show his truth to the world. He wants you to experience not just kind of a personal relationship, but a whole kingdom with him ruling. I mean, it shows God's heart and the gifts that he offers to us. But think about this also. Don't we tend to disconnection? Don't we tend towards independence? Think about your life. Think about decisions that you're trying to make or have made. Think about busyness of life and when life pushes in what you do. Think about suffering and struggles. What happens when you when life is hard and difficult, oftentimes, what's your instinct? It's to pull away, right? It's to isolate. It's to be by yourself. It's to say, I, I really need some time. Life is busy. I really need some time for me. Life is really hard. I really need me. Life is really difficult. I need to kind of pull back. I've got some choices to make. I need to think. I just need to be by myself. And yet all of these images, all of these images, show us deep connection with other people. The church is a temple. It's a household, a family. It's a building. It's a field. By itself, all of those things are weird. Uh, if, you, if you went to a, if you looked up on your phone, like, oh, I'm going to go to a, you know, a, a vineyard. We're going to go to this vineyard, try some other wine. And you show up, and there's some guy sitting there, and just table, one grape. This is not a vineyard, you would say. This is a grape, because a grape by itself is just a grape. It's not a vineyard. Or if you were to show up at some place and you're like, oh, I, come check out my new building, and there's just a brick. Like, that's one brick. That doesn't constitute a building. It doesn't fulfill what its function is. An arm disconnected from the body is gross. An arm attached to the body is beautiful. Look at your neighbor and say, you've got beautiful arms. No, I'm just joking. <clears throat> but that, that is what the church is. And yet, oftentimes, we live our life as a grape or a brick or an arm and, and then don't experience all the fullness of what God intends for us to experience. I want you to think, just be honest, I'm not asking to shout anything out or anything like that. How do you feel? Do you feel in any way like you're missing a part of what God could do in your life? Do you feel like in any way you are disconnected from other people and, and wish there was greater connection? Maybe you feel on the outside in some way. How, how do you feel about God and your closeness with him? So often, we feel like we're not quite where we would want to be. We read things in the Bible and feel like, ah, yeah, I don't have that. And yet, what God's plan is, what his vision is, what he holds out to us is this deep connection in the church. And you'll never be able to experience what God intends for you with him or with other people if we are an arm, a grape, a brick. He intends for us to be deeply connected. That's what all those metaphors show. There's no metaphor that will show the church 
as this independent, isolated thing. His plan for you is the church. The church is the assembly of God's people, experiencing all of what these metaphors reveal to us, which means you will never have what you could have apart. That's why for us, community groups where people are gathered together is such a big deal. That's why membership for us, we just had our membership class, is such a big deal. Because we are saying, God wants you to be deeply connected to experience all that he has. And you'll never have it without that. You'll never have, and I'll just tell, I will testify to that for myself. I grew up going to church, and when my parents got divorced, we weren't really connected to the church, and I started to, some of you have heard me say this before, but started to get to a place in my life where I felt like, man, I read my Bible, I listen to great songs on CDs, those are these little discs that have a hole in them, I listen to songs on CDs, I, 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 I felt like, man, I, I don't need the church. I love Jesus, I, I'm good, I didn't have any Christian friends, I, I felt like I was good. It wasn't until college I met some Christian friends and got connected to a church that I realized, oh, I thought I was good. Yes, I could read my Bible. Yes, I could worship Jesus. Yes, there's some things that I could have. But I wasn't experiencing anything of what God actually intended in its fullness through this church. This is what the church is. What are the characteristics of the church? What are the characteristics of the church? Another way to ask this would be, what makes a church? What makes a church? You drive around, see a lot of buildings. There's all sorts of different denominations. There's all sorts of different groups. There's all sorts of different things that call themselves a church. Sometimes people say, that's just me and my friends, we do church together and call that church. What makes a church. What do you have to have to be qualified as a church? I'm not talking legally speaking, but just what makes a church? What qualifies? What are the characteristics of the church? And there's two places. I show you all over the Bible, but I want to show you two places that help us understand this. One is as Jesus dies and resurrects, and as he sends out his disciples to go start and create churches and disciples, what are the instructions that he gives them? That helps us to know. So what is the church? What are the characteristics? And then also, once they started doing that, what were the characteristics? Let me just show you these two passages, and we'll refer to them as we go through. But it says, Jesus came near and said to them, this is called the Great Commission, probably familiar to many of you, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, so he's sending them out now as he leaves, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then, as the church really begins at Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon, thousands of people come, they gather together, the church is formed. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These two verses really help us understand what are the marks, what are the characteristics, what are the attributes, what makes a church. I'll show you one other confession. We've, I've been talking from the Westminster Confession because it's a great uh, confession. And, I, and listen, if, if you're like, why are we looking at a confession? It isn't just the Bible. Here's why. Because it's good to have something that's hundreds of years old 
that isn't just, I Googled this, and here's what, the, here's what the Google says the church is. Here's what a guy on his blog said. Here's what some stupid person on Instagram said. That, that's dumb. It's good to know, man, what have Christians thought really wise, thought, counsel, spent their lives, what, have, and, and it has lasted the test of time for hundreds of years? What have they said? That's a wise practice to do. C.S. Lewis said, we have chronological snobbery where we often look back in the past and go, oh, those people are stupid. What we need is new, modern definitions. That's what we need. No. What we need is old stuff. That's what we need. Okay? That's why we like old people in our church. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, the Belgic Confession, this is another confession, the Belgic Confession, the Protestant Reformation, is when people looked at the Catholic Church around them, no offense to anyone here that's Catholic or recovering Catholic, the, the, the Protestant Reformation is when people looked around and said, there's a lot of unfaithfulness happening. How do we go back to the Bible and see what is true? Okay? And the, the, the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, others, all those people that started the Protestant Reformation, one of the first confessions as they are reacting and reforming the church out of Catholicism, one of the first confessions that was made was the Belgic Confession. So it predates the Westminster Confession by 100 years. And here's what it says of what the church is. What, like, not, not the definition we just gave, but the markers, the characteristics. What do you need to have to make a church? Here's what they say. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. Three things. It's got, a church has to have these three things or it's not a church. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments. That's baptism and communion, as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. That is from the Belgic confession of faith. Now, I want to walk through these three characteristics, these three marks that it gives. And this is so important for so many reasons. I wish I could spend an hour just talking about this. Don't tempt me. I wish I could. Here's what this means. The church is not just Christians. It's not just me and my friends, we do church. No, it's not. The church is not just a group of Christians coming together. That's not what the church is. That's Christians coming together. It's not the church. It's also not just anything that we want it to be. It's not just, well, you know, aren't we all on the same team, and there's that church, and there's that church. Some churches with actual physical buildings are false churches. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be fire and brimstone. But listen, if you are a vegan or a vegetarian, and you go into a restaurant, and they serve you a steak... And you say, I thought this was a vegan restaurant. They go, yeah, but our interpretation of vegan is this and includes cows. And you would say, that's not what it means, though. That's not, that's, or if you try to buy something organic and they're certified organic. Well, that means something. If you taste it and you're like, this tastes like deep. This is not, this is bizarre. It actually means something. There has to be certain characteristics and certain marks. If you go to see a doctor and you say, where did you go to medical school? Oh, I, I didn't do that. I am a doctor in my heart. Me and my friends, we went to medical school together. We, we are a medical school. You would say, I am leaving and calling the cops, right? 
certifications, qualifications, characteristics, those things matter. So it can feel judgmental at times, but it matters to be wise and discerning and say, what is the church? What are the markers? What are the characteristics? So if churches don't preach the true gospel, like the Belgic Confession says, it is not a good or true church. Here is what just from Acts that we looked at, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is part of where the Belgic Confession gets some of those ideas. And there's many places that you will see things like that. First Timothy says, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So you're going to see all sorts of things in the Bible about preaching and teaching and devotion to the apostles' teaching and preaching and the word and all of this stuff that the Bible says about preaching and teaching and all that stuff. So if the church can just be a handful of Christians getting together, why is there so much that the Bible says about, here's what the church did when it got started. It was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's all these instructions about making sure that the pastors are preaching and teaching and doing it well. That's why the Belgic Confession says there is no true church if the preaching of the gospel rightly done is not happening. It's a false church. Sadly, that would include a lot of churches. That doesn't mean not just meet our preferences or not just our preaching style or our... That's not what it means. But is the true gospel being preached? I don't want to offend anyone in this room unnecessarily, and I don't know everybody in this room. But this would mean that there is plenty of people that have the name church on their board, whether that's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or even churches that would consider themselves in line with Luther and Calvin and some of the reformers, and yet... They have fallen away from the true gospel. It would mean many churches that just preach self-esteem and boosting, helping you just live a better life are not true churches. They are false churches. And don't hear me saying like, and true life is the only right. That's not what I'm saying. There's a lot of great churches. There's plenty of awesome churches. But there are also false churches that do not meet the first qualification of preaching the true gospel. They are false That's part of why, by the way, when it says that this is the first marker of a true church, that's part of why we really value the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's why I don't give you a 15-minute homily and then say, go in peace. That is worthless. You need, we need God's word. That is what a church is. God wants you to hear his voice. That's why it's the first characteristic or mark of a church. God wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to know his truth. He wants you not to just hear the voices of everything else, but to hear his voice, his gospel, his truth. Resting at times in it, trusting, being convicted, being challenged. That's what he wants for you. That's the first characteristic of the church. The second characteristic is the discipline, which again, you can just look at a verse like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and there's plenty of other verses on church discipline that I won't go to, but if you think about a church that is devoted to the apostles' teaching, what does that mean in practice if it's devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, it means, as the Belgic Confession says, there has to be correction when people deviate from that. You can't have devotion to God's word, to his teaching, if there isn't correction when that's veered off of, which is why that's another reason that The pastors, elders, deacons are an important part of church because you'll see things like this. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. And later in that same passage, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect. 
These are the two offices in the church, elders or overseers or pastors, all synonymous, and deacons. And you really see, even with this word, overseer. Well, I know that kind of sounds sort of like NSA-ish, but it's to see over. Well, why do you need someone to see over? Why is that one of the offices in the church is someone that sees over everything? Well, because the church discipline. We have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, which takes people that are responsible for saying, are we actually going in that direction? Are we being faithful to God's word? Are we actually in practice being devoted to God's word? That's why you will also see with the elders, it says this, I'll skip this first part, but it says he's, uh, Paul's telling Titus to appoint elders in every town. And the reason for that is so that the elders will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So inherent in the placing of leaders, elders and deacons, inherent in that part of it is that there would be church discipline. You don't have a church that theoretically is preaching God's word and yet in practice is not helping to guide, that's what the discipline is, the correction to guide towards faithfulness to God's word. That's why that's the second mark of a church. That's why if you go to a church and it's just a big giant stadium and you hear an uplifting message, but there isn't actually any involvement in the helping people be guided towards faithfulness, devotion to God's word. It isn't meeting one of the qualifications of what a church is to be. It's a vegan steakhouse. <clears throat> and then the third one is the sacraments. Belgic Confession says there's three marks. The third is the sacraments. I'll go back to that slide in just a second. Sacraments or some Protestant traditions, will, Protestant traditions will call it the ordinances, meaning it's something ordained by God. The sacraments or ordinances are things that were commanded by Jesus. That's where we get them. They're not just things that people invent. They're things that are directly commanded, instituted by Jesus, and that then have been practiced by the church for thousands of years. And amazingly, though the church disagree, though the church, capital C church, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, etc., disagree on all sorts of different things. They all agree on these. They don't agree exactly how they're practiced, but they agree these are sacraments and ordinances from Jesus himself. They are the entrance into the community and part of the way that we ongoingly are reminded of what Jesus has done for us. They are the language from the Westminster Confession, I won't put it up there, but the language from the Westminster Confession is that they are signs, meaning they signify, they show what God has done, like a wedding ring. They are signs of, of an inward spiritual reality. It's an outward symbol. It's a sign, and it's a seal. And I love the language of seal because it's saying that they are ways that God impresses upon what he's done for you. They're ways he further deepens in your heart what he's done for you. It's a sign and it's a seal for what he's done. And the two sacraments, ordinances that are commanded by Jesus and, and that are a characteristic of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Here, we already read this, but Jesus, as he sends them out to start the church, the very first command that he tells them is to go baptize. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? Baptize them. That's the very first thing. And we already looked at right, before, we looked at right after this. Peter preaches a sermon. He tells them, repent and be 
baptized. It's the first thing that kicked off the church. Each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we already looked at this. Those who accepted his message were baptized. That is the very first sacrament of the church, baptism. It's commanded by Jesus. And here's what it means. Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. This really gives us what the meaning of baptism is. It's this unification with Jesus. It's the symbolism of you being buried with him in his death. You're united, meaning your old life is gone. It's been crucified. It's dead just as he died. And then you walk in newness of life. It symbolizes a cleansing of sin, repentance, and unification with Jesus. Here's how the catechism says it. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting, unifying into himself, of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. That is what baptism means. It's a sign of a beautiful reality. It's a seal of a beautiful reality. It is the entrance right into the church. That's part of why uh, we don't just baptize strangers at True Life. There's been various times where people have said, hey, I'd like to be baptized, and they they're just kind of passing through town, or they go to another church. We're like, well, no, it's supposed to be admitting into the visible church. That's part of what baptism is. It's part of why in different traditions do different things with infant baptism and adult baptism. At True Life, we do baptism for people that can make a mature profession of faith because of what it signifies being a cleansing of sin and turning to him. This is the first sacrament. And the second is communion. When it says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, one of the things that Jesus commanded was that they would remember him as they partake in the Lord's Supper or communion. So that's included in that. And that's why when the church first starts, it says to the breaking of bread, you might read that just as, I don't know, they were sitting around breaking bread for some reason, but that is referring to taking the Lord's Supper. It's referring to Jesus breaking the bread at the Last Supper and blessing it and then participating in the new covenant of his body broken, his blood shed. And when you come to Paul, he will say this, for I received from the Lord, there's that everything that I have commanded you, pass on, what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is communion. We call it communion. Other people call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, different language, same thing. Here's what the catechism says. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, his death is showed forth. It means we remember his death. And they that worthily communicate feed upon his body and blood, symbolically. But we are saying we need him. We are nourished by him to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Have their union and communion with him confirmed. We're being reminded and confirmed. This is what he's done for me. I'm one with him. 
testify and renew their thankfulness. We're thanking him that he's forgiven our sins. We're thanking him that he's united us with him, that we can walk with him. And engagement to God and their mutual love and fellowship, each with other as members of the same mystical body. We also proclaim when we take communion, I'm united and one with these people. So it is a beautiful reality. The sacraments, that is the third characteristic of the church. And let me just give you one last thing on communion that is important as well. Paul says this, whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. That's not just talking about falling asleep in church, like, oh, I fell asleep. It's talking about people have died. Okay, so this is serious. This is not some people like, oh, that's, does God still, does God do that? Yes, he does. Because taking communion is a reminder, a sign and a seal of the beauty of what Jesus has done for you. And if that is misused, abused, taken sacrilegiously, which means not recognizing the body, you're doing it in a way that is just uh, not actually thinking about what he's done, you're actually bringing judgment upon yourself and God may discipline you. God may bring illness among you. God may bring sickness among you. I've never seen this happen, but God might kill you. I know that's weird. I don't know any, you know, how many churches are going to tell you that. I don't, I don't know, but that's what Paul says. God might do that. We are to examine ourselves when we take communion. We should not have any unrepentant sin in our life as we take communion because it is, it's a a total abomination from what communion actually means. Thank you that you've forgiven me of my sins and I'm going to keep doing them. It doesn't, it, Paul says, beware. So the characteristics of the church are, is God's assembled people, we are listening to his voice. He wants to speak to us. We are being reminded of what he's done for us, being assured of what he's done for us, being sealed with what he's done for us through the sacraments and being led by him. God doesn't just save us, he leads us. That's what the discipline and the correction is meant for. Finally, what is the purpose of the church? What are we doing here? Why does this exist? That's an important question. Many of you come here every week. What's the purpose? Why are we here? What's this for? What's the re- Why not just be at home in your pajamas? Why not just watch football? Why not just go to brunch? Why not just get drunk Saturday night and be able to sleep it off Sunday morning? Why not? What's the purpose? What are we doing here? Why not go ski? What are we doing here? I don't know. No, I'm just joking. It's like, that all sounds good. I might have just convinced you, some of you, never to return. What is the purpose? It's easy to kind of have our own ideas of what the church is supposed to be. Say, well, I think the church should be like this, or why don't we do this, or I want us to do this. What is the purpose that God has given to his church? And the first purpose, it's very simple, but it is to worship God. We gather to worship God. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts talking about his word, and talking about us responding in song. We gather together to worship God. This is a part of worship, by the way. 
Worship is not just singing. Worship is we are responding to who God is. We're seeing who he is more clearly. We take time to see him through his word, and then we respond to him in singing. And we gather to worship God. Sometimes some churches, some pastors will say something like this. This is not for Christians. This is for people that are not Christians. So everything in the service is designed for people that are not Christians. Listen, I know some of you are not Christians. We're glad that you're here. We want you to know Jesus. But this is mainly and primarily a time that we worship God. And we hope that you see that and through that see something of who Jesus is. But this is not designed as purely for someone that's not a Christian. It is to worship God. But it's also not just to worship him. It's also for our growth. Paul says, we proclaim, that's the preaching, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul has this deep passion that everyone would mature. And he's saying, I, I'm, I'm giving everything I've got to this. I'm striving with his strength powerfully within me. That is, I will just tell you, as your pastor, as someone that preaches most weeks, this is my heart for you. I seek by God's power to be empowered by him with his strength. And I labor to help present you mature to him. You, I will just tell you this, if this is your first time, or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks, you saw a cool Facebook ad or something, or liked our website, or I don't know. You are going to be super annoyed if you come to this church and you don't want to grow. You're going to be super annoyed. You're going to be frustrated. I mean, why can't I just sit in my seat, drink some coffee, and then leave? You're going to be really frustrated because we want you to be presented mature in Christ. We want you to experience everything God has for you. We want you to take the next steps in your faith. We want you to mature in every way. We want you to be built up into who God has designed you to be. We are not content with you showing up. We're not. I'm glad you're here. I believe God wants you here. But I will not be happy, and God will not be happy, and it's not his desire for you to just fill up a spot. That's not what God wants. He wants to help you mature to experience all that he has for you in every area of your life. Again, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. We are committed to teaching you to observe, to obey everything that God's commanded you because his commands are good and what he wants for you is good. And so the second purpose of the church is to grow. It is to worship God and it's for Christians to grow. You should not stay the same. God wants more for your life, whether you are five years old or whether you are 85 years old. God still wants to help you experience more that he has for you. We're, and I, I just, I'm committed to that. That's why I'm just giving you the option to leave because you're going to be annoyed. We want to help you grow and experience everything he has for you in your life. And then the final piece is that the church exists for God's mission. When he says, go therefore and make disciples, that includes helping Christians to continually grow, but it also is the initial experience of someone who is not a Christian becoming a disciple of Jesus. That God intends, one of the purposes of his church is to go into the world 
and see more and more people come to be disciples. There are a lot of good things that we can do as a church, and there's things that we do. But the most essential thing that the church's mission is supposed to be about is sharing the gospel with those that don't know him. We exist to worship God. That is our purpose. We exist to grow together as Christians. And we exist to help other people come inside of that, to enter into that, to experience who he is and what he's done for them. God's church does have a mission to go into the world. God's church has a mission, which does also mean that if you are only content to just grow, you are not actually growing if you are not also engaging with God's mission. Part of how you can do that, this is not exclusive, part of how you can do that is investing in people's lives. Investing in people's lives, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family. Investing in people's lives, inviting them to church. Part of how you do that, and many people do this every Sunday, is serving on Sundays. We can't do what we do without everybody serving. Part of how we do that is giving financially. This church wouldn't exist. People didn't give financially. Part of how we do that collectively as a church is that we give thousands of dollars every year to church planting locally and across the world to see more churches started. So there's a lot of different ways that we say God's church has a mission. It's supposed to go forward. This is what God's purpose is for his church. And I'll say this also in closing on this point. This also helps you assess as you come in here. Am I coming prepared to worship God? Am I coming prepared to worship God? The New City Catechism says, how is the word of God to be heard? How are you supposed to listen to God's word being preached? And it says, with diligence, preparation, and prayer. So one of the purposes that we're here is to worship God. Am I coming prepared to do that? It also helps you to assess and say, am I seeking to grow? If that's part of what God's purpose is, that's why this exists, am I seeking to do that? Am I taking advantage of all the different ways and opportunities that can do that on Sundays and other times? Am I, am, I, am, I, am I doing that? Am I seeking to grow? Am I using what the church has to grow? Am I using its leaders and its resources and its classes and its community? Am I, am I seeking to grow? It also helps you to assess just your participation in God's mission. Am I committed? God's purpose for the church is for more disciples to be made. Am I committed to that? Am I joining in on that? Am I participating in that in all the various means? This is why God gave the church. This is what its purpose is. This is what our purpose is as a church. Which, by the way, is why God says things like this in the Bible. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. See, it's God's idea that we gather together. It's the church is the assembly of God's people. And all the different things that were just described, the metaphors of the church and what the purposes of the church and how God leads and speaks to us through the church and guides us and corrects us through the church and leads us to worship and we participate in his mission and we grow as Christians and he signs and seals what he's done, all of those things. That's why he says, don't neglect to gather together. Used to be the case back in the day. 
Maybe some of you, depending on what part of the country you're from, even remember this. Everything was closed on Sundays. Because not neglecting to gather together is a biblical command because of all the beauty of what the church is. Because of all the beauty of what God says, we, he, he know, God knows us. He knows what we need, and he knows how he can give it to us and for us to experience. And yet, we live so casually with the church. This is perhaps one of the most needed commands in our day. As we gather together, and all the more as you see the day approaching, all the more as we know one day Jesus is going to return, gather together, participate with one another, experience all he has for you. Listen, if you're a Christian, or even if you're just exploring things, as, as long as Christianity has existed, the church has existed. And yet I know, I know, I'm not dumb. I used to be there myself. Oftentimes, it's just a casual thing. We're not even sure. What's it for? Why is it here? Do I really need it? Can I just watch church online? God wants to give you the church. That's what his plan has always been. And there is a version of your life that is deeply connected as a vine, as a brick, as a temple, as a family. There's a version of your life where you get to experience the church. And there's a version of your life where you might have your own private personal faith, but is not what God intends. And you'll miss out. And for those of you that are here and you know and you're a part of the church, and you're, this, is, this is why, this is why. This is, why, this is what God's doing in your life, and this is what we get to give to other people. We're going to take communion in just a moment. One of the sacraments or ordinances where we get to remember his sign and seal on our life. And as we talked about, as Paul talked about, I want to urge you to use communion every week, but use communion as a time where you remember his death, what he's done for you. You remember him sealing and assuring upon you his forgiveness, his cleansing of your sin, that you thank him for his death on your behalf and that you repent of sin. Let nobody take it in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself. Are you living in unrepentant sin? Confess. Turn. Receive his grace and forgiveness that he freely gives. And as you take communion, take time also to thank him for his church. It is by his blood that he purchased the church. We have this because of what we remember when we take communion. He bought the church with his blood. Thank him. And maybe take time to confess where church has been casual to you or hasn't really been in the center of your forefront, your life, your mind. Confess where maybe you haven't participated in his mission. And ask God to take the next steps in your faith and life as a part of a church. To serve, to give, to deeply connect with other people. Let's pray and then we'll respond in worship of God and in taking communion. If you didn't grab a cup on the way in, you can grab one of those. When I pray, you just take communion when you're ready. Jesus, we thank you for the church. Thank you for all that the church is. Thank you for your blood shed, your body broken to give us the church. To give us yourself, to give us a family, 
to bring us in, to assemble us together by your blood. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to love your church the way you do. Give us your heart for your church. And may we continue to grow faithfully as your church. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.